Let's turn to our scripture reading this morning from John chapter 3, as we're reading together the first, teen, first 15 verses of this remarkably remarkable passage, and it's a very well-known passage, and one that will be familiar to you. You'll find it on page 1649, page 1649 in the Pew Bible. For those watching at home on our television broadcast, when we open up the scriptures here at church, please feel free to do so at home as well and follow with us in our study. And likewise, those either here in the United States or overseas joining us on our live stream broadcast as well. Most of you will be aware that over the last few Sundays, and actually it's been eight Sundays, and that's hard to imagine, we have been embarking on a series of studies called What Do You Believe? Faith and Culture. And during that time, we've dealt with some very sensitive yet topical issues. Sensitive in the sense of we have touched on sexual identity. We've touched on physical intimacy, both inside and outside of marriage. We have touched on abortion and a whole number of very sensitive issues. But I wanted to finish this series quite intentionally by saying, having equipped us to engage with and live out our faith day by day, it would be good to finish with a focus on the heart of the gospel itself. And so when we look at what do you believe, that's why we're coming to John chapter 3 today. So John 3 verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe? If I speak of heavenly things, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us his holy word. Now this morning, allow me to ask you to use your imagination. And this will be an easier exercise for some of you than for others. 
Because I want you to imagine that you are 31 years old and physically fit. That's the part that will be harder for some of you to get than others. And a good friend whom you have as a very close and dear friend has asked you, would you like to do a little hiking on the Appalachian Trail? Now, in your mind, you know the Appalachian Trail goes through 14 states. It is over 2,200 miles long. It is a spectacular hiking trail. And your friend suggests, let's go out and do a little hiking for the day. And so you meet to plan the trail. And at 31, you're feeling a little adventurous, full of energy, and you decide, somewhat inadvisedly, to do an overnight on the trail. So the hope is you will hike out 10 miles, you will settle down, sleep for the evening, perhaps in, and forgive me for this, an old Scottish term, a bothy, at the side of the trail, and then hike back 10 miles again the next day. And so, after all of your preparation and packing, you're making your way along the trail, and you're conscious that on the trail, you will pass by some very small rural communities. And in fact, what you discover is that there is a home not that far from the trail, a couple of hundred yards, and there is an older couple out in their garden working away. And as you pass, you smile and wave, and they say, hi, and through you go. And as you walk on with your friend, you can hear them talking. You can't quite make out what they're saying. But what they're actually saying is this, I'm not sure they're going to make it. Did you see the rain jacket he had on? And I didn't see enough warm clothes or food. And incidentally, you know, the temperature is going to drop tonight. And we really need to pray for them that they get back safely. Now, the problem that the hikers face on the trail is, for this older couple, entirely theoretical. If the temperature drops and they feel cold, they simply go inside and put the heating on. If they're hungry, they go into the kitchen and open the fridge and they have as much as they want. But for the hiker, there's no such thing as a theoretical problem. For them, for them, it is immensely practical to make sure you have enough warm clothes, you have sufficient food, you are well prepared for the hike. And Sunday by Sunday, as we open up and spend time in the Scriptures, we never do so simply from an abstract or theoretical perspective. We come intentionally to study God's Word in order that we can apply it to our lives and then live it out during the week. Because for us, the study of God's principles are pertinent and relevant. We know that growth comes in our faith as we are obedient to God's call, apply it to our lives, and it's in the application that we grow. We can study the theory, we can study the principles, but actually applying it in a way that makes a difference, that's where maturity comes from. And so this morning we're coming to this incredible passage of Scripture and want to be practical as we study it. So those principles can be applied in the course of the week. Now most of us are aware that John's Gospel is different from Matthew, Mark and Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, as you know, are the synoptic Gospels. 
they're seen through the same optic. But John, when he writes, he's in his late 80s, his early 90s. He's conscious of Matthew and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel. How much, we don't know, but he's aware they're there. New Testament scholars will tell us. And so his approach is slightly different. And it's slightly surprising as well. Because when you stop and look at John's gospel, there's no mention of shepherds or wise men or Mary or Joseph. There's no mention of a stable or an innkeeper. There's no angelic appearances or predictions. The actual baptism of Jesus is not recorded in John's gospel, surprisingly. Jesus being tempted in the desert doesn't appear either. There's no mention of his transfiguration on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's no sermon on the Mount. And believe it or not, there are no parables in John's gospel. Now, isn't that surprising? But John does include the wedding at Cana in Galilee, the washing of the disciples' feet at the Last Supper, that very poignant and moving moment. And there are several sections when Jesus interacts with individuals that are not found in the other gospels. And we see it here in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 through to chapter 9, in fact. And this morning as we come to this passage, let's begin to immerse ourselves in it, explore it together, and then begin to ask, how do I apply its teaching and its principles to the week ahead? Now, the first thing you see is, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the ruling council. And that meant the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin being the overall ruling council were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And Nicodemus, in your mind, think of a senior ecclesiastical figure. Someone who may be the president of Divinity School at Princeton or Yale or Harvard back in 2000. <laughs> 16, I remember I learned a new word that I mentioned it to you at the time. And Ruth and I, along with her son Michael, moved to the South back in 2007. And it was 2016 before we heard what has become one of my favorite words. And the word was, in reference to an individual, he is a grand poobah. I had never come across a grand poobah before. I didn't know the word, but it stuck in my mind, as you can tell. Nicodemus was a grand poobah, a muckety-muck. He was right up there, senior ecclesiastical figure that would be recognized across the entire nation. And the question is this, and look at the passage. There was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Why? Why does John record it happening at night? And I suspect John is not simply focusing on the hour of the day, because later on in chapter 3, verse 19, this is what he says. He says of humanity... Light has come into this world, but men love the darkness. And John's gospel is laden with symbolism and metaphor. And I think we hear an echo of that symbolism right here. He came in the darkness. And John is hinting at more than physical darkness. He's hinting 
at the state of Nicodemus' soul and hinting that there's darkness right there. And so as he records the passage, it begins to unfold. And Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In other words, Nicodemus is saying, now Jesus, we have been watching you over the last year or 18 months and we see hundreds and thousands of people whose lives have been transformed by your teaching. We see that they are coming to the temple week in and week out. We see they have moved to a new level in their relationship with you. Your teaching is transforming their lives. And we see one miracle after another, after another, after another. Who are you? They're not asking where were you born, where did you grow up, who are your parents. They are asking that much deeper, richer question, who are you? He's asking, Jesus, are you the Messiah that brings the kingdom of God into this world? That's what he's asking. And Jesus responds, and notice what he says. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this, Nicodemus, you should not be so concerned about whether I'm the Messiah and bringing the kingdom of God into this world. Nicodemus, you should be concerned about, are you in the kingdom of God? Do you have a living relationship with him? Do you know him intimately? Does he dwell within your heart and mind and soul? Do you sense his comforting presence, his tender touch, his enabling grace? Nicodemus, do you know him? Have you experienced what it means to be born again? And that was a challenge to Nicodemus. So much of a challenge because Nicodemus is over here and all of his formal training, all of his counsels, all of his conferences have been focused on the external duty of religious observance. What to eat and when to eat it. What to wear and when to wear it what to pray, and when to pray it. And when you go to the temple in Jerusalem, you have to bring this kind of sacrifice on this month of the year. And then on that month of the year, you bring another. And the, the entire focus is on external duty. And Jesus is over here talking not so much on the external, but on the spiritual. Have you been born again? Nicodemus, do you have a relationship with him? Nicodemus, I'm not asking about external religious observance of ritual. I'm asking about a personal relationship, an engagement with God himself. Nicodemus is incredulous. He can't see it. And in fact, he said, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. I remember learning to drive when I was in my early 20s. And in those days, the driving instructor would 
teach you something along these lines. If you're changing from state to state, excuse me, if you're changing from lane to lane on the interstate, check your rear view mirror. Check your wing mirrors before you move. And they would teach along these lines. They would teach mirror, signal, then maneuver. But there was one other instruction that they repeated and repeated and repeated till you were fed up hearing them say it. And it was this, once you check your mirror, once you signal, when you're ready to maneuver, glance over your left side or double check on your right side before you actually change lanes. Mirror, signal, maneuver, then check. Why? Because there's a blind spot on most vehicles. I have it on mine. That if I moved too quickly without physically checking, I wouldn't see the vehicle. That was Nicodemus. There was a blind spot. For Nicodemus, faith was about religious observance. For Jesus, faith was about a personal growing love with his Father. A world of a difference. Now, you might be sitting there this morning saying, okay, Richard, I think I hear what you're saying. I think I've got it. But what's involved in this experience that Jesus is describing as being born again? It involves this. That within the gospel itself, there is an innate power to transform the heart and mind and soul and to draw us into a relationship with God. Within the gospel itself, there is that call of God to submit and surrender to his rule and his reign in every aspect of our lives. And in submitting and surrendering to his love and grace also means confessing our sins and saying, Father, there have been times when I've messed it up, and I've messed it up badly, and I've hurt others, and I've hurt you. Please forgive me, change me, transform me, allow me to enter into a relationship with you. That's the gospel. And at the center of it, as we know, is Calvary where Christ offered himself for us in our place. That's why the passage goes on to John 3.16, the best known verse in all of history. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life that's what lies at the heart of it, the eternal life of the soul. And sometimes people will come to me and say, and I've said this before, and if this is redundant, please forgive me. Sometimes they'll come and say, Richard, there's something wrong with me. When I'm not at church on Sunday morning, I'm thinking about next Sunday. Prayer has become a priority for me. Worship is so much more meaningful for me now. I'm opening up the Scriptures and it's making sense in a way it never made before. What is wrong with me? And I say, there is nothing wrong with you. 
you have come to that point in your life where you have submitted and surrendered to His love and His grace, and you are now walking with Him. Previously, it was a little like looking at an email on a smartphone, and then suddenly you discovered high-definition 4K television, large screen, and full color, and you see things you could never see in your smartphone. It's no longer religious observance, but it's become the transformation of the heart and mind and soul. That's what's going on. Intimacy with God. Christ has changed you. Your very nature, your disposition, your character, your personality. You have new motivations, new desires. That's why it's important to understand and grasp the significance of the gospel. Now, you may be saying, okay, Richard, I think I've heard everything you've said. I've got it. But give me something to do this week. You started by saying, let's be immensely practical. Well, let me do that as we wrap things up this morning. Because it's not enough just to describe for you what Scripture says. So let me challenge you, if I may. If you are here this morning, if you're watching on our television broadcast or you're watching our live stream either here in the U.S. or overseas, and you do not have a relationship with Christ, my prayer for you this morning is that this will be your morning with Him. And that quite simply involves this. It involves prayerfully recognizing that you don't know Him, that there's sin in your life, that you want to be transformed and renewed and refreshed by Him and drawn into that relationship. And it begins, Father, start with me. Give me a new opportunity. Allow me to begin again. Or perhaps in the last few months you have wondered, or you find yourself coming to church quite simply because a husband or wife is dragging you, and this is the last place you want to be on a Sunday morning. And yet God is graciously at work in your soul, and He's drawing you. And rather than give you something to do, let me ask you to be someone. Be thankful for His love. Be grateful for the immensity of His grace. Live out your faith this week in full, profound dependency on Him, refusing to let life with all of its distractions and busyness and demands determine who you are. Allow Him to be at the very center of your soul, not religious observance, but holiness and accountability, and character, and obedience, and faithfulness, and forgiveness. And may the grace of God include each one into His call this morning that we might this week live for Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning. Thank you for everything it calls us to be. 
And for those of us raised on religious observance, thank you for that experience, but enable us to move to that richer and fuller life of being grateful for your love, appreciating the immensity of your grace, and allow us to live in awe this week, quite simply, because you love us, because you love us, because you love us. In Jesus' name we pray.